You can open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 23. Starts on page 17 if you have one of our welcome table Bibles. We're actually going to, we'll be starting in um, uh, verse 20 of chapter 22, but our main focus is going to be on chapter 23 this, this, uh, this week, today. Last week we saw that uh, Abraham faced the most difficult uh, test of faith in his life and pass with flying colors. He was told to sacrifice his son and, and, and he did not withhold his one and only son, the son of promise, from the Lord, and the Lord uh, gave him a ram to sacrifice in his place. God provided the substitute, right? And Abraham passed that test of faith. Today we're going to see that although Abraham may have faced his hardest test in what we saw last week, it wasn't his final test of faith. And, and why? That's because faith in God is an enduring faith, Right? It's not just made up of all of these, uh, of these like giant moments where we're tested in, in, in these huge ways. It's, it's an ongoing every day and every little moment kind of thing where we continue uh, to trust God in what he's doing in us and through us and with us. We persist in faith. We grow in faith. And today we'll see that in the ups and downs of our lives, God promises uh, God's promises remain a steady path for our feet as we continue to walk by faith. And so, uh, in faith, I want to pray that God will reveal what he chooses to reveal to us and strengthen us by his word this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it, it is the same this week as it was last week. We thank you for uh, the order that you've put into it that reveals your plan of redemption culminating in Jesus Christ. And so we pray this morning that you would use your word to fix our eyes on him, to calm our hearts, to bring peace uh, to our weary and troubled souls, to encourage us to continue on, knowing that you are good on your promises, because every one of them is yes and amen in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So if you've ever bought a, a house or a car, uh, unless you're just like super loaded, you probably have made a down payment on it, right? With the promise of, of paying it off down the road, right? Most people are, don't have enough money to, to pay everything up front. And that down payment acts as a guarantee of, uh, that the rest of what was promised is coming. But because we can't provide all that we promised on the front end, and, and because uh, all that, that is required is needed on the front end, what do we end up doing? We get a loan, right? So that the, the bank ends up fulfilling that promise for us. And yet, when we do that, we're at risk of over-promising and under-delivering. Because if that happens, then we default on the loan, and we don't own the thing that we wanted in the beginning, right? Uh, the bank ends up owning that. Here's the thing, though. This is, it's kind of a lame intro, okay? But here's the point. I know, I was struggling. I'm sorry. Just, this, don't remember this part, okay? When God makes a down payment on a promise, he comes through. When God makes a down payment, it's not because he has, he has uh, 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 the, the rest, or it's not because he doesn't have the rest of it up front, to give to us. 
and he's unsure if he'll be able to fulfill it. Instead, this down payment on the promise serves as a guarantee that he will deliver all that he's promised, but because he's God, he does it in his own time and in his own way. So here's our, what we're, what we're going to uh, see this morning in, in Genesis 22, end of 22 and 23. And what we need to think about and remember for us, because God has given us a down payment on the promise, we should invest our earthly lives in his eternal guarantees. The the down payment that God has given us should actually shift the way we live now in expectation of what's to come. So we get a little glimpse of looking forward to what's coming for for Abraham and his family at the end of Genesis chapter 22. So here... Verse 20, look with me. Genesis chapter 22, verse 20. Now after these things, Abraham was told, Milcah also has born sons to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, his brother Buzz, Kemuel, the father of, of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight to Nahor, Abraham's brother, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, also bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Ma'aka. All right. There's going to be a test afterwards. So, The main names, the only names, really, that you need to remember here are Milka, Nahor, Bethuel, and Rebekah. Those four, okay? We're reminded here that Nahor is Abraham's brother, and he hasn't been mentioned uh, uh, since chapter 11 where we first learned that Milcah was his wife, and all of that was to sort of set up the narrative for what's coming later. And so now we're picking back up into that, and we're getting a little bit here. Sometime after Abraham returned with Isaac from the mountain in, uh, of Moriah, uh, that he got this news that, the, that his brother and sister-in-law had several sons. But notice where the quotes are there. In verse 23, we actually, as the readers, get a little bit extra information than Abraham does. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Abraham doesn't have that information yet. He just knows that he has some nephews now. Okay? But the author puts that in there for his readers to prepare us for what's coming in chapter 24. And this is important information because God had already promised Abraham that his offspring would be traced through Isaac and that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But in order for those things to happen, what does Isaac need? He needs a wife, right? Next week in chapter 24, we'll see that God will provide Rebekah to be Isaac's wife. This foreshadowing of God's provision is also important because of what was about to happen in chapter 23, which is where we're going to spend the... Uh, bulk of our time this morning. So read with me. Genesis 23, verses 1 and 2. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were all the years of her life. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Sarah is the only matriarch in Genesis whose age is mentioned when she died. And, And while that may seem a bit irrelevant, It's not. It does remind us of a couple important things here. And the first is this. Even though this is a rather specific detail that we are given, it helps us to see that there are many details that we aren't given here. 
Remember that she was 90 years old when she gave birth to Isaac. That means that 37 years have elapsed between the beginning of chapter 21 and now, the beginning of chapter 23. And between there was a story that was focused on Abraham's relationship with Isaac, Genesis 22 last week, not on Sarah's relationship with Isaac. And that's because the the Bible is not primarily recording the history of God's people. It's narrating the mystery of Christ himself, hidden in the promises of the Old Testament and revealed in their fulfillment in the New Testament. The last recorded words that we have from Sarah are back in chapter 21, when she told Abraham to drive out Hagar and and Ishmael uh, from from their household. And she said this, For the son of this slave, talking about Ishmael and Hagar, will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. And what did God do? He told Abraham to listen to Sarah and do what she said. Why? Because Abraham's offspring would be traced through Isaac. That was God's promise. The last words that we have from Sarah are actually reiterating the promise of God. And in chapter 22, God said that the offspring that would be traced through Isaac would be too numerous to count, but also that his family line would be traced down to one individual offspring who would conquer his enemies and bless the nations. And the mystery of Christ was hidden in those promises and revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection through which he conquered our greatest enemies, right? Satan, sin, and death. And he brought about blessing to the nations by securing the total forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who rely on him through faith. We're not just reading about history here. We're reading about the history of redemption here. That's why we can have a 37-year gap between chapters 21 and 23 and not miss anything, right? All scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament was written by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was selective in what he chose to have recorded on these pages. Because these things that are recorded are all connected in ways that bring us, point us directly to Jesus over everybody else. He's the main point of all of it. And so even though we don't know everything that happened in those 37 years between Isaac's birth and Sarah's death, we have enough. We have enough. We have what we need to know in order to carry on the grand story of redemption. And Sarah's part in that story is coming to an end here. And her death is also a reminder of what happened in the beginning of this grand story and why redemption was needed in the first place. Why did Sarah die? Because she, along with the rest of humanity, lived under the curse of sin. Her death soberingly reminds us of the consequences of the rebellion in the Garden of Eden and of the rebellion of our own hearts. We do, we we can look at Sarah's life and see where she herself rebelled, right? Her own need The wages of sin is what? It's death. Even though Sarah was chosen by God and given the special role of giving birth to the promised son of Abraham, Sarah herself could not undo the curse. 
And her importance in the storyline did not exempt her from its consequences. And neither would Abraham be exempt, nor Isaac, nor Jacob, nor all the, the, the descendants after them. They all, along with the rest of humanity, needed someone else to undo the curse for them. When Jesus hung on the cross, he bore our sins and experienced the curse of sin when he died. But then he undid the curse of sin when he rose from the dead and never died again. And now everyone who believes in him, even if they die, will live eternally with him. Sarah died even though she believed God, and now she eternally, now she lives eternally with Christ. Think about that for a minute. We're not talking about somebody who's dead and gone. Her bones are in the ground somewhere, but she's with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for everyone who puts their faith in Christ, right? So we speak of her in the past tense in this story, but we can talk about her in the present right now. She's with Jesus. That's pretty mind-blowing. And yet, the joy of that eternal reality doesn't prohibit us from feeling the pain of our present reality when, when our loved ones pass away. Last week, we saw from the book of Hebrews that Abraham was convinced that even if he had to sacrifice Isaac, God was able to raise him from the dead. Surely he would have had that same confidence when his wife died, but, but we see here in verse 2 that that confidence did not eliminate his sorrow. Even though Abraham's faith was securely in the Lord, what did he do? He still wept over the death of his wife. Why? Because he loved her deeply. I've been reading through the Gospel of John, and this week I read John chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the, the dead. The shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus comes up to the grave, stands there. He knows what he's about to do, and what does he do? It says Jesus wept. Even though he was literally just about to call Lazarus, raise him from the dead, and have him walk out of the grave. Why did he weep? When the crowd saw him weep, they said, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. Listen, if our Lord, who is the resurrection and the life, literally just told that to Mary and Martha. If our Lord, who is the resurrection and the life, if he wept over the death of a loved one, then it's not just okay for us to mourn. It's actually necessary for us to do that. When we weep over the death of those dear to us, it doesn't mean that our faith is weak or non-existent or we've forgotten our hope. It can actually be an indication that we truly understand the present reality in light of what's to come. You see, we should lament as our Lord did over the reality of sin's curse. We should grieve as Abraham did over the pain of separation brought about by the curse of sin. When we see Abraham weep over Sarah and Jesus weep over Lazarus, we're reminded that the scriptures never encourage us to pretend like everything is fine when things aren't really fine. Does anything in the world allow you to do that? The scriptures are honest about the pain of loss, and so we can and we should be honest too. And as a church family, we have felt pain. We know that pain. We know that loss, and we continue to feel that. 
We know firsthand that the Christian life is not without grief. But because we have the scriptures, we're able to see that grief is a gift that God has given to us because it allows us to process the pain that we're feeling, to express it in a form of sorrow, to empathize with one another because we all know what loss is. But it also then invites us to acknowledge the brokenness in our world and in ourselves. And then it directs us, it, it points us to long for something better than our current reality. And because we have the scriptures, we know that our grief goes somewhere. That we are not left to mourn without hope. We can be confident in God's promise that because Christ defeated death, death will not defeat anyone who has faith in him. Amen? Abraham mourned over the death of his wife, Sarah, but he did so holding on to the promises of God. And strangely enough, we're going to see that in what takes place next. Look at verse 3. Then Abraham got up from his bedside, from the bedside of his dead wife, and spoke to the Hethites. I'm an alien residing among you. Give me burial property among you so that I can bury my dead. The Hethites replied to Abraham, listen to us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the finest burial place. None of us will withhold from you his burial place for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down to the Hethites, the people of the land. He said to them, if you are willing for me to bury my dead, listen to me and ask Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf to give me the cave of Machpelah that belongs to him. It is at the end of the field. Let, let him give it to me in your presence for the full price as burial property. Now, that, that transition in verses 3 and 4 can sort of sound cold, right? Like he goes from mourning to, to just getting down to business. But remember, the text is selective in the details that it presents in order to draw our attention to the main point. We know that Abraham mourned for his wife. We don't know all the details of how long and what that looked like, but we know that he genuinely mourned for her. And the rest of this chapter is going to focus on Abraham's negotiations with the Hethites to acquire this piece of burial property. And so for, after a formal time of grieving, again, however long that was, Abraham went to the Hethite leaders to make his pe pe petition. Now, by the way, your, your uh, uh, translation might say Hittites instead of Hethites. Um, it's the same group of people, okay? Uh, there's a whole reason. There's, there's several Hittites mentioned that aren't the same group of people, but these are the ones that are the descendants of Heth, who was mentioned as one of Canaan's sons back in chapter 10. And that's one of the things that the author wants to make clear here. Sarah died in Hebron, what does it say? In the land of Canaan. And it's this land that God had promised to give Abraham and his descendants, but as Abraham makes clear in verse 4, none of that land was his yet. He told the Hethites, I am a, an alien residing among you. This is your land, it's not mine. And how did they reply to him? Verse 5, you are prince of God among us. It sounds similar if you remember back to what Abimelech said in chapter 21 of Abraham. Abimelech said, God is with you in everything you do. Right? Abraham might have been a foreigner in the land, but these national leaders in all these places where he's, where he's traveled and set up his tents and stayed for a while, they all understood that Abraham had this special relationship with God. 
This exchange in verses 4 and 5 between Abraham and the Hethites is also the opposite of the one between Lot and the, the men of Sodom, if you remember that from chapter 19. Lot, Lot went out and he, and he called them brothers, and what did they call him? An alien, foreigner. Here you have Abraham call himself an alien, and these Hethite men treat him as a brother. All of this is helping us see that even though Abraham was in a predicament at the moment, he was still the recipient of God's promises. And God had not abandoned him. So we get into this bartering between Abraham and the, and the Hethites. Kind of like arguing about who's going to pick up the check after the meal at the restaurant, right? Like, oh, I got it. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of go to reach for it, and you sort of wait till they reach for it. And they're like, no, no, I got it. No, it's cool. No, no, let me get this one, right? Are you sure? Because I can. No, it's good. I, I got it. All right, I'll get the next one right? Okay. It's not exactly like that, but there is this, this uh, uh, a lot of mutual respect here mixed in with a little bit of pretense. Like, like you want to pick up the check because you're having a meal with your friend, and you genuinely want to do something nice for him, but you're also secretly doing it because then the next time he'll owe you one, right? The Hethites had a ton of respect for Abraham. They weren't just, they weren't just blowing smoke when they, when they called him a prince of God among them. That wasn't like a hyperbole. They really saw him as this man who had this relationship with this God. It was clear to them that this God was different than the other gods, and he had this special favor on Abraham. And so when he asked them for a place to bury his dead, they said he could have any place he wanted including their finest, and they would not withhold it from him. They'd give it to him. Nothing was off limits. The problem with that offer was that if Abraham accepted it, they would still have the option of revoking it later because it would be more like a loan than an actual gift. Let me lend this to you is basically what they're saying. By offering their property for Abraham's use, they would have put him in their debt. He would, he would have owed them one, so to speak. And they may have even hoped to gain favor from his God for their generosity, right? They know this relationship is there. And so it was an offer that showed Abraham a great deal of respect, but their generosity was also a little bit self-serving. But Abraham wasn't unaware of this. In verse 4, when he said, give me the burial property among you, he wasn't suggesting that they just hand something over to him as a gift. He was starting the bargaining process because he was familiar with their customs. Abraham had spent considerable time living in Hebron. After he and Lot split up in chapter 13, he moved his tent to Hebron and set it up near the Oaks of Mamre. And he also built an altar to the Lord there. That might be one of the reasons why they recognized his special relationship with God and had so much respect for him. But that respect was mutual. Abraham humbly bowed down to them in verse 7 in response to their offer. But again, in verse 7, the author goes out of his way to note that the Hethites are the people of the land. That phrase shows up two more times in the upcoming verses, and then the land of Canaan again is mentioned in the upcoming verses one more time. The author redundantly adds these phrases in in order to emphasize what Abraham has already said plainly. He's a resident alien among these people. 
Even though God had promised him this land, it was still theirs. In fact, by this time, Abraham had lived in the land, get this, as a foreigner for 62 years. That's six decades of living in the land that God had promised to give him, but Abraham still didn't own any of it. And we thought that waiting 25 years for the promised son Isaac to be born was long. Abraham's life is a life of waiting. It's a life of faith, trusting in God to fulfill the promises that he made to him. Even after 62 years, Abraham still believed God's promise. When Sarah died, he didn't return to his homeland of Haran. When God called Abraham in chapter 12 to leave that place and to go to the land that God would show him, Abraham obeyed, and he never went back to where he came from because he trusted God's promise. Hebrews 11 helps explain this for us. Verses 8 through 10 say, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. We're going to see that too. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. A few verses later, verse 13 through 16, says, These all died in faith, all the people that were listed in Hebrews 11, including Abraham and Sarah. These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham wasn't thinking about where he came from or he would have had an opportunity to go back. This is his opportunity, right? His wife died. He could take her back to his homeland and bury her there. This would have been the opportunity for him to return. And he knew that God promised to give him and his descendants the land of Canaan. And so by faith, what did he do? He stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise. But Abraham was 137 years old when Sarah died, and he wasn't getting any younger because he believed God's promise. He wasn't just looking for a grave to bury his wife in, but a place in the promised land where he and his descendants, generation after generation, could be buried along with her. Abraham was staying put. And in verses 8 and 9, shows us that Abraham was, already had a specific place in mind, this cave of Machpelah at the end of Ephron's field. It would, be a suitable, uh, it would be suitable to house the remains of multiple generations of Abraham's family and because it's a cave, right? It's a big tomb. And Abraham made it clear that he wanted to buy the cave rather than borrow it. He offered to pay full price for it before he ever knew how much it cost. Look at verse 10. Ephron was sitting among the Hethites. So in the hearing of all the Hethites who came to the gate of his city, Ephron the Hethite answered Abraham, No, my Lord, listen to me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the sight of, the, of my people. Bury your dead. Abraham bowed down to the people of the land and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, Listen to me, if you please, let me pay the price of the field 
Accept it from me and let me bury my dead there. Ephraim answered Abraham and said to him, My Lord, listen to me. Land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed with Ephraim, and Abraham weighed out to Ephraim the silver that he had agreed to in the hearing of the Hethites, 400 standard shekels of silver. If Abraham knew so much about this cave in Ephraim's field, he certainly would have recognized that Ephraim himself was there among the, sitting among the Hethites. But it would have been rude for him to completely ignore everyone else's offers and start dealing with Ephraim himself. And so out of respect for everyone present, Abraham bows low again. And then he asked them to speak on his behalf in order to carefully transition the conversation to this personal business now between him and Ephraim. But he needed to do it in front of everyone else. They were sitting at the entry gate to the city where all the business dealings were done. We saw that back in chapter 19 when the angels visited Sodom and Lot was out at the, at the city gates. This is where all the leaders are. And the author goes out of his way, though, to make it abundantly clear that there were many witnesses to this deal. Look at the phrases he uses. In the hearing of all the Hethites, in the sight of my people, in the hearing of the people of the land, in the hearing of the Hethites, in the sight of all the Hethites. Over and over and over and over again, he makes it really clear that people are seeing and hearing what's going on. Back in verse 9, Abraham made it clear that he wanted Ephraim to sell him the cave for its full price in front of all of these people, in their presence. Why? He wanted witnesses to the deal so that he and his future descendants could prove that the transaction was legitimate. You remember when he argued with Abimelech over the well? Hey, your guy stole it from me. I built it. And Abimelech's like, I didn't see it. That mistake isn't going to be made here. And guess what? Some 4,000 years later, we see it. It's right here. We have record proof that this is Abraham's. Abraham's exchange with Ephraim was, was just as polite and respectful as it was with the whole group. Abraham asked to purchase the cave, but Ephraim offered to give him not only the cave, but also the field that the cave was in. It was a public display of incredible generosity. And yet, once again, if Abraham were to accept the gift, what would happen? He would be in Ephraim's debt, and there would be witnesses to it. So Abraham countered with an even more generous offer of his own. Since Ephraim offered to give him not only the cave, but the field as well, Abraham offered to pay full price, not only for the cave, but also for the field as well. And in perhaps this last-ditch effort to convince Abraham to take the field as a gift, maybe to, to try to push him you know, back to that instead of thinking about how much it costs, he casually mentioned the price. Hey, listen. The land's worth 400 shekels, but what is that between friends, right? Just take it. Just take it. I got this one. Verse 16 is a key verse because it gives proof to the legitimacy of the deal. Abraham agreed to the price in the hearing of the Hethites, which obligated him to pay it in full, but it also obligated Ephron to accept that as the payment because that's what he said it cost. 400 shekels. That was the price he gave to Abraham in the hearing of the Hethites. So he couldn't be like, oh, well, actually, you know what? It's more like 600. 
Abraham weighed out the shekels according to the market standard, so there would be no discrepancy over the amount he paid. They, they weighed their currency at that point. This deal was com- <clears throat> excuse me, completely legit all the way around. You see how detailed that is? 37 years passed between chapter 21 and 23. We have more detail about this deal than we do about Sarah and Isaac's relationship. Why? Because this is the first piece of the promised land. This is the first piece of the promised land. It's hard to tell whether 400 shekels was a lot of money for that amount of land or if Abraham got a good deal on it. We just don't have enough information here from the text as far as how much a shekel actually was worth at that point or how much land it actually was. But that's not really important. What is important is what we get here, that Abraham paid the full price for the field and the cave in it. He didn't haggle. He, he, paid, Ephron, uh, he paid what Ephron asked, and the deal was made. The property was now irrefutably and irrevocably Abraham's. Look at verse 17. So Ephron's field at Machpelah near Mamre, the field with its cave and all the trees anywhere within the boundaries of the field, became Abraham's possession in the sight of all the Hethites who came to the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave of the field at Machpelah near Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field with its cave passed from the Hethites to Abraham as burial property. After 62 years of living as a resident alien there, Abraham finally owned a piece of the promised land. And he buried his wife there. It's a bittersweet ending to this narrative and this point. Sarah saw how, or she saw God's uh, fulfill his promise to give her a son, but she died before she saw him begin to fulfill his promise to give them the land. Abraham finally had a part of the land, but he, he got it so that he could bury his wife. And it's in this bittersweet picture that we see both Abraham's faith in God and God's faithfulness to Abraham. Abraham was promised a multitude of descendants, but Isaac was his only son of the promise when his wife Sarah died. He was promised all the land of Canaan, but the only property to his name was a graveyard. Now we might look at this and be tempted to think that God overpromised and underdelivered, like like he made this this down payment and then was just trying to to get the rest along the way. But if we thought that way, we wouldn't be thinking the way Abraham was. It was Abraham's faith in God's promise that led him to be willing to sacrifice his only son, trusting that God would raise him from the dead. It was Abraham's faith in God's promise that kept him from returning to his homeland to bury his wife and led him to instead buy a field with a cave in it so that he could bury her, and not just her, but his bones could be laid there, and the the bones of his ancestors, of his descendants could be laid there in the land of Canaan, in the land of promise. Abraham trusted God's promises because he trusted God's faithfulness to fulfill them in God's time. Yes, we saw there were blunders at times where Abraham tried to speed things up, right? But the New Testament remembers Abraham for his faith. Not because Abraham was the perfect example of faith, but because he really did trust in a faithful God. 
Abraham trusted God's promises because he trusted God's faithfulness to fulfill them. And Abraham's one son and this field with a cave in it were the beginnings of that fulfillment. God gave Abraham a foretaste of what was to come, a down payment on the promise. And by faith, Abraham saw that down payment as a guarantee because he knew that God's promise went, went way beyond earthly blessings in the scope of his lifetime. And after listing Abraham and Sarah among the number of others who, who lived their lives by faith in God, Hebrews 11 ends this way. 30, Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. And now as those who live our lives by faith in God, we are included in God's promises to Abraham because Abraham's physical offspring has made us his spiritual offspring. Jesus was born as a descendant of Abraham, traced through the line of Isaac, and he lived in the promised land in Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, in that area. He lived there as a man who had no permanent home. Remember what he said? Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He lived there as a temporary resident. And after he was crucified, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. It was borrowed because he didn't need it for very long. Only three days. He didn't need that property. Because Jesus was resurrected. Our own burial plots are temporary. Because of God's promise, our bodies will not stay in the ground forever because a day is coming and coming soon. Lord, come. Let it come when Christ will return in all his glory and at his shout, the bodies of all who have died in him will be raised in glory with him and reunited to their souls and spend all eternity with Christ forever. This is the promise That's the promise. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Until that day comes, we must remember that we, like Abraham, are sojourners in a foreign land. We are resident aliens who've been given a foretaste of what's to come. That doesn't mean that the only piece of property we're allowed to own here is our own burial plot. But it does mean that we look beyond this life to the final fulfillment of God's promises because what he has promised, he will fulfill, right? We, we, we saw this. God does what he says. God does what he says. You know what that foretaste is that we've been given? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him, Jesus, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, the Holy Spirit, listen, is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. See, we've been given God's Holy Spirit as a down payment on the promise. God gave us himself to live inside us as a guarantee that we will live with him forever just as he promised and that we have an, an eternal inheritance waiting for us just as he promised. 
but the down payment and the inheritance is only received by faith as a gift from God. There's no haggling. There's no negotiating this price. It's already been paid in full by Christ. He knew the cost, and he paid it. He was crucified and resurrected in the sight of many people so that all who put their trust in him, listen, can be irrefutably and irrevocably his forever. Have you received that gift, that free gift of salvation? If not, let today be the day that you put your faith in Christ. We get even more of a foretaste in our lifetime than Abraham did in his. We have the full counsel of God's word to see this mystery of Christ that was hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. There are promises yet that we have to to see, to come. Just like Abraham during his time on earth knew there were promises that would yet to become, we still wait for what we do not yet see. God's promises have yet to be fully and finally fulfilled in all things. But here's what's crazy. Just like thinking about Sarah right now with Jesus, Abraham now sees what we don't. He's there. He's with the Lord. These aren't fictional tales we're reading. This is redemptive history. Abraham now sees what we have yet to see, but because we've been given the down payment on the promise, we can know, not can, we should know, we should know that we will see the fulfillment of all things that God has promised to us along with Abraham, along with Sarah and everyone else who walks by faith and not by sight. Because we have that guarantee, we ought to make sure then that the investments that we make with our lives are eternal ones and not just merely earthly ones. We should live like we know where we're going and we know what we're receiving from the one who promised it. Our God, our great God, the one who is the ruler yet, the one who governs all things for his glory and our good, is your life ordered around that conviction Because God has given us a down payment on the promise, we should invest our earthly lives in his eternal guarantees. That doesn't mean that we can't own anything or enjoy things here, but it does mean that we don't exhaust our time, our relationships, our resources, trying to hold on to things or even to to get them in the first place that don't last. Or trying to gain for ourselves in this life that, that can only be given to us in the life to come. We live as resident aliens awaiting a greater inheritance, and God is faithful to give us everything that he has promised. He's good for it, including the grace that we need to continue living by faith until we see with our own eyes every last promise fulfilled. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your promises to us. We thank you, God, that we can see your faithfulness stretched over literally thousands of years. That the promises you made to Abraham weren't just for Abraham. That we can enjoy the fruit of those promises.
because you have fulfilled those in Jesus Christ. And then some, Lord, you have promises that go into eternity that we are waiting upon. And we pray that because you've given us your spirit as a down payment, you've given us your word to help us remember, to guide us as we wait. You've given us your church to wait together with one another, to encourage one another, to fix our eyes on things unseen and not on things that are seen. Because what is unseen is eternal and what is seen is temporary. Father, you have truly given us everything we need right here and now to wait with real faith for what is to come. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, strengthen us, when we forget that. And Lord, we cannot wait to see your promises fulfilled. We pray, come, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.